the holidays are coming. And for most of us, it is an accidental invitation to practice loneliness, to practice maybe being alone in the presence of others. I'm sure your family is wonderful and functional and meets all of your relational needs at every moment during family gatherings when people have had too much to eat and too much to drink and are no longer, you know, in their right minds. But personally, my family is a little bit trickier than that. While there is deep love, there is often deep isolation. So I thought I would share a few reflections with you today about the power of aloneness and how we can reframe and recast maybe difficult interactions into not loneliness, but an opportunity for sovereign aloneness. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Uh, you likely hear in my voice that I have a little bit of a cold. I'm not sure what I have actually. I've, I recently returned from spending 10 days in Morocco. And while I was there, I either picked up a bug or my uh, respiratory system is responding unfavorably to the amount of dust and sand and smoke and time that I spent up staying way too late, dancing around a fire in the middle of the sand. So basically any source of respiratory inflammation has been part of my life for the last 10 days. I'm not complaining. It was worth it. Uh, I would do it again. I really loved the experience of being surrounded by new sights, new scents, stimulation from all kinds of different sounds, and just the sense of being transported to another world. I went on this trip with an organization called Wayfinders. You may have heard my episode a few episodes back with the founder, Mike Bursick, who uses these kinds of adventure travel experiences to help entrepreneurs create deeper connections, both with others and with themselves. So I was on this trip with um, an amazing crew of people, people, some that I knew beforehand who were already dear friends, um, some who I got to know for the first time in a pretty significant way. But the thing that I'm struck with this morning, the thing that I want to maybe talk a bit about is not so much the deep connections that I made, but the moments of deep aloneness, the moments when I was either physically completely alone in a significant and unique way, and the moments when maybe I was surrounded by other people, but felt within my spirit, within myself, a deep sense of separateness. Of course, if you've been following my work for any period of time, you know that I am deeply concerned about loneliness in entrepreneurs. There is, you know, an abundance of research around the health consequences of loneliness, the real dangers that loneliness poses to our mental health. So I talk a lot about the, I guess, the bad side of aloneness. If you get this Unfounder newsletter, um, just last week I wrote about the life-saving importance of friendship in adulthood, especially for entrepreneurs. So this message is a little bit different and it's a little bit nuanced, but I want to shift the script, flip it on its head a little bit and reflect on the importance, not of a pervasive aloneness, loneliness in the world, 
but of moments of deep solitude and what they have to teach us and to show us both for our own selves, but even about our most important relationships. My first story of aloneness happened while climbing a mountain. Mount Tukal in Morocco is just shy of 14,000 feet. So it's a big one. And it was the kind of uh, experience where you get up at 3.30, so you can hit the trail by four, so you can hit the peak, the tip of the peak by sunrise and, you know, make it down the mountain by darkness the next day. And I will confess that I probably had no business attempting this climb. I live in Minnesota. I don't do a lot of uh, altitude changes. And it's been a long time since I've done that kind of a mountain experience. I think I led with a little bit of hubris that uh, I spend, I don't know, maybe 15 hours a week working out given all of the various uh, physical circusy things that I do. And I feel like my body is um, a pretty well honed machine. However, um, probably not super well honed for this particular activity. So as we began to climb the peak very early in the morning in darkness, snow on the ground, very cold, I did well for a while But then maybe three quarters of the way up, I really began to struggle. I felt dizzy and lightheaded. I I kind of felt drunk, like my limbs weren't really moving in the way that I wanted them to or the way that I expected. And I just wasn't able to move as fast as my colleagues were. So the vast majority of the group went on ahead and I stayed back with a guide and with a couple folks. And I was kind of ready to turn around at any point. Like it was... It was okay for me to turn around. I would have accepted that in myself. But frankly, by the time I was really out of steam and really felt like I might be doing something quite dangerous, the guide was like, you know, 20 more minutes to this and 20 more minutes to that. And then you'll be there. And, and, you know, just sort of sold it as like not a big deal. Uh, I'm thinking he was pretty optimistic. It was quite a long way left. But this guide, his name was Mohammed. Um, He was an older gentleman. He just grabbed my hand and just walked with me, holding my hand up the mountain. I think he was quite nervous that I would slip. The crampons that, you know, we were provided with didn't fit my like elf-sized feet. So there was really quite a danger of slipping on the snow and ice. And so this guy's holding my hand. All my friends are gone, uh, except for a couple. Uh, My friends Josh and Kirk were kind of in the backpack with me. And I began to feel very aware of the reality that if I was going to get off this stupid mountain, it was really very much up to me. There was no real help. I mean, I could be sort of pulled up by the hand like a little child, but even that had to be my own doing, my own volition, my own choosing. There was no getting saved from it. So my decision to put one foot sloppily in front of the other and to try to work within my own psychology, my own mindset around continuing on was absolutely an inside out job. No one around me had, you know, the energy or strength to carry me or do it for me. Although at one point I really started to feel quite badly in my brain. And I asked my friend Josh if he had the energy to talk to me for a little while. And he said, yes, I can, I can just like talk to you for a little bit. And, uh, 
he said, you know, what would you like me to talk to you about? And I said, just tell, tell me about your dog. <laughs> so for like 15 minutes, Josh just talks about his dog solidly. And it was actually quite a gift because it helped me have a little bit of buffer around some of the harder stories that were happening in my brain. Being on the mountain really reminded me of the brother that I lost because he was quite a mountain man. And every significant mountain experience that I'd had as a younger person or, you know, as a young adult had been with him. And so I felt his absence so acutely on the mountain. And I think that's one of the things that really, you know, caused me to struggle as I was like in the middle of this grief story, as I'm trying to do this very physically demanding thing on conditions when I don't feel well. And so the aloneness that I experienced was the possibility of being left alone. My brother left me alone in a way. The irony, of course, was that I wasn't alone. <laughs> I was with a guide and other, two other friends, but the encountering the possibility of aloneness was in that moment a little bit of a psychological dragon that I needed to dance with. And then there was a moment where I began to feel okay with it, where I began to feel okay with my own radical autonomy with my own responsibility to continue to move my body, to continue to manage my mind, to get me up the mountain. And I think it's the kind of aloneness that a lot of entrepreneurs experience. It's this deep recognition that it is up to you. And that is both terrifying and freeing. The parameters are clear. The conditions are clear. What's required of you is clear. There are sources of support and help but ultimately, you, I, are absolutely and deeply responsible for our own ability to move ourselves from one place to another place. So the recognition of that aloneness invites us into the ability to dig down deep and find within ourselves the decision to keep going or to turn back, to ask for help or to linger alone, to be silent or to create a story in our minds. It's the aloneness that helps us recognize our own need for action. My other case study in aloneness, which came from my experience in Morocco, was in a very different landscape, off the mountain, away from that stupid snow and ice, on the edge of the Sahara Desert, the part of Morocco that borders Algeria, in the grandest expanse of nothingness I've ever seen. I've been to the Sahara Desert before one time when I was um, about 20 and I was living in Ghana and I took a trip up to Burkina Faso and sort of got to the edge of the Sahara Desert. But on this particular trip, we had an invitation to be alone, intentionally alone in the Sahara to find a place where we could not see or hear another person and to spend two hours alone in that silence depending on your comfort with that kind of open space, that kind of silence and aloneness. The mind and body do a variety of things. Um, my mind and body, for the first, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 minutes, I had no actual way to track the time. But for a while, I did the hopscotch of like, I'm cold, I'm hot, should I move? I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. If I drink too much, I'm going to have to pee. I can pee out here, there's nobody out here, it'd be fine. What if I drink too much of my water too soon? How long can I make in the Sahara without water? Did I bring enough water? 
water would go nicely with a snack, but a snack might make me feel tired and then I have to take a nap. If I took a nap, that would be fine. We'd be fine out here to take a nap. Nobody would know. I would just fall asleep. But what if I missed a drumbeat that tells me when to go back to camp? If I don't hear the drumbeat, I'll be lost at home forever. Blah, blah, blah. You see how it goes. But after, you know, spinning around that particular carnival ride in my head for a while, I became more and more aware of my surroundings. And I started to watch the way that the wind was blowing the sand and the way that it left patterns in the dunes. And I started to notice that even though it feels very still, actually nothing is still. It's all in motion. Every moment of the desert is changing, though it feels vast and permanent. Its existence as a stable entity is an illusion. And of course, you can see the existential wormhole this leads to. I lay down in the sand and let the wind just kind of blow the sand over me, let my body get a little bit buried in it, and contemplated what it would be like to be part of the sand, for the sun to bake off my skin and then to decay my body and the bones become part of the sand. And there's that reflection from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And for a while I felt my life is just a grain of sand, just a blip. And maybe that sounds horrible. Maybe it sounds like I'm playing fast and loose with what's precious. But I will say for me, there's a lot of freedom in that feeling. There's a lot of freedom in the finite nature of this life. And while my life is brimming with possibility and joy and pleasure and all these things, it barely leaves a dent in the sand of the Sahara much less a dent in the larger universe. So in a way, this aloneness is a tremendous reminder that it's just not that important, that I'm just not that important, that you're just not that important. So all of these big stories, these worries, these anxieties in our heads, we can turn them down. And what if our smallness, our aloneness is actually not scary, but is a state that we can be comfortable in? It doesn't have to frighten us. It doesn't have to trigger our longing for love and connection and need. It can exist alongside our desire for connection. Both can be true at once. On my last day in Morocco, Rob took a flight to Malta. <laughs> so he's in Europe from MicroConf Europe. This is our, I think, longest separation or longest time away from each other, probably before our kids were born. Before we had children, I would take these month-long backpacking trips to Central America, which um, Rob wanted no part of. <laughs> so we did um, separateness quite often earlier in our marriage. But since we had children and our uh, lives are inextricably woven together just to get the day done, we haven't had um, multi-week separations very often. So I came home tired and I came home sick and I came home kind of exhausted and uh came home to an empty house. I mean, my children are here, but empty of my partner. And I think in an earlier version of myself, I would have felt kind of whiny about that. I would have felt lonely or I would have felt like, well, who's here to make me soup and make me feel better and pat me on the head. But these experiences of aloneness left me with this deep imprint that I am enough internally, enough to meet my own needs, to take care of myself to advocate for myself and what I need and long for. And while I delight in the comfort and camaraderie of my partner, there's a power in not feeling like I need it to fuel my life. And of course, the irony is that this kind of aloneness 
that fuels this kind of self-sufficiency and autonomy also fuels wonderful relationship because it's in our respective separateness that we flourish as autonomous beings, which allows us to bring the fullness of our separateness into our interactions with each other. Because I'm not dwelling in what I need or want from him, I can celebrate what he's doing, where he's going, leading his community, supporting entrepreneurs that he's passionate about, building and supporting the microconf ecosystem. My wholehearted support and celebration from him is untainted, untarnished by any shadowy resentment that he's away. So to summarize this existential, slightly philosophical rant, there's an invitation to practice aloneness and to walk that edge of finding it to be something that can challenge and nourish and strengthen not something that plummets you into loneliness or a sense of lacking or not enough. Aloneness is a meditation in enoughness. When you are at your holiday table and the relatives say something that reminds you that they will never really appreciate who you are and what you do and what you offer the world, instead of letting that hurt, take a deep breath and smile into your own sense of clarity about who you are and why you are and what's contained inside of you. In your moments with your partner, let your aloneness remind you to recognize and celebrate them as a separate autonomous creature and to delight in any moments of magical meeting between the two of you. It's our separateness that allows us to see each other. It's our aloneness that allows us to celebrate the connection. And it's only in my full assumption of my own autonomy that I can be the fullness of who I truly am. So let's reclaim aloneness as a gift, not as a condition, but as something that offers us so very much. Good luck around those holiday tables. One place where I can't really practice autonomous sovereignty is in um, Amazon reviews. So... (laughs) I know, odd transition. But if you have read Touching Two Worlds or if you are open to reading Touching Two Worlds, I'm hoping to really up my number of reviews on Amazon. So I would be very grateful for your help in keeping this little book baby healthy and strong and in front of lots of eyes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.